0: Hello everyone and welcome to the New Books in Medicine podcast, part of the New Books Networker podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Corr. Today we will be talking to Dave Chase. He is here to talk about his new book, The Opioid Crisis Wake-Up Call, Healthcare is Stealing the American Dream. Here's how we take it back. Dave, welcome to the show.
1: Well, thanks for having me on, Jeremy. Looking forward to our chat.
0: I wonder if you could begin the interview by uh, telling us a bit about yourself.
1: I mean, my background uh, professionally is one where I started in healthcare and management consulting and worked in a couple dozen different hospitals and then went over to Microsoft, started their healthcare partner ecosystems. So as I, I sometimes joke, you know, blame me why most of the legacy health IT is on Microsoft's platform. That was my job. And then I detoured away from healthcare for over a decade and then came back and had a startup called Avado that ultimately had some success and got acquired by WebMD. And then it was during that journey that uh, I, I sometimes joke that I, you know, as any startup does, you look for a market gap. And I went looking for a market gap. And what I found was the greatest heist in American history. And so that's really put me on what I'm focused in on now. Uh, you know, of course, we'll talk about the book and, and uh, you know, my related work.
0: So what inspired you to write the Opioid Crisis Wake-Up Call?
1: Well, I had really been doing a deep dive into the employer health benefits arena. It was interesting how little is known about that, even though you know, overwhelmingly, if you don't get your if you're not low income or elderly, you get your benefits in healthcare through your job. And yet from you know CEOs of companies literally to the White House, uh, people don't know about it that much and don't realize that it's our employee health benefits that have created a 20 year long economic depression for the working and middle class. And it was through that, uh, which, of course, that's a whole story in its own right. Um, but that I saw, wow, this opioid issue is really a big issue. Of course, it's in the public consciousness because you know, some call it the largest public health crisis in the last 100 years. And as I dug into that, I realized you know there's the expression, every addict needs an enabler. And in the 12 major drivers that I found on the opioid crisis, the employers were the key unwitting That's a key word, unwitting enabler. Of course, they're not trying to do this Um, and realize, gosh, people have not connected the dots most in the media and the government are greatly oversimplifying the opioid issue. And consequently, the so-called solutions at best nibble around the edges and at worst make things worse. So, you know, at a certain point, I couldn't not write the book.
0: Like you said, this was the. The worst public health crisis in the last hundred years, essentially since the terrible Spanish flu pandemic. How bad exactly is the opioid crisis right now?
1: Yeah, it's awful. Uh, You know, more people died of drug overdoses with opioids being the biggest chunk of that by far uh, last year than died in the entirety of the Vietnam War on the American side. And it is the related thing that came out recently was lifespans uh, decreased again in the U.S., which is pretty unprecedented. And a big part of that is the opioid issue. So it's really a dramatic deal. It's the number one driver of deaths for people under 50 years old. And so it's it's just really awful A to Z. Um, and those are just a couple of the dimensions of it.
0: So earlier, you talked about the primary drivers of the opioid crisis what are those? And can you talk a bit about the history of it? How did it happen and how did it get so so bad and so widespread?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a multifaceted deal. And I would say that the, probably one piece of it that gets overlooked the most is the fact that what created a lot of fertile ground for the crisis was how we've essentially devastated primary care in this country. And so that then has a bunch of ripple effects where we have these very short appointments that are seven minute kind of drive-by appointments and so then you look at sort of the history that sort of capitalized if you want to put it that way on this issue there were things like pain had been under treated and it led to pain becoming a fifth vital sign and that increased prescribing and there was requirements from the joint commission Of course, it's well known that the pharmaceutical industry did a sales and marketing blitz and told docs that, you know, these opioids weren't addictive and, you know, then opioids, you know, another big driver, in fact, the single biggest uh, driver of prescriptions to opioids is lower back pain, even though there's no evidence that it's actually effective for lower back pain. In fact, it can make it worse sometimes because you're just masking the issue. And the way I put it is, it would be like putting STP in your your gas tank for a carburetor problem. It's a chemical intervention for a mechanical problem. It's not going to solve it. So, I mean, there's nine other drivers, but those are some of the big, big ones that set the stage for this. And the back pain one is just kind of a good, bad microcosm of how our healthcare system operates, where even when there's no evidence, but there's financial incentives that are at play, uh, the fact is, you know, for the the, uh, carriers, there's more margin in pills than there is in physical therapy. And so, you know, even though there's no evidence that opioids are effective for things like back pain, they readily pay for them, and then they make things like physical therapy either difficult to access or outright, you know, don't pay for it in some instances when they should.
0: Let's shift gears a little bit. One of the things you wrote in your book that I found extremely interesting was that you said that if a foreign country was causing the kind of damage to our economy that the health industry is, we would go to war in a second, yet we haven't. Can you talk about that for our listeners?
1: Yeah, I mean it really you know runs the gamut for I, mean, I mentioned the economic depression that has happened, you know, a 20-year-long economic depression for the working and the middle class. You know, it's one definition of the economic depression is two or more years of income stagnation or decline, and overwhelmingly, I mean, it's at least 95% generated by the employer health benefits where. Employers are actually spending a lot more money on employees than they did 20 years ago. The problem is every dollar and then in some cases and then some has gone to healthcare. And so you've created this economic depression, then you have other dynamics such as healthcare has just devastated uh, our schools. You know, you look at Bill Gates devoted an entire TED talk to essentially how healthcare devastated education. And he used data from California, which happens to be where I started my k twelve education, at a time when it was generally considered the best public education system in the country. Well, it's pretty much the worst now, you know, largest class sizes, lowest graduation rates, and it's thanks to health care primarily. And he kind of breaks that down. And so you know here you've created a depression, you've devastated education. And then, you know, depending on which figures you believe, Um, you know, the uh, preventable medical mistakes are either the third or fifth leading cause of death. If you look at every day, there are 10,000 serious preventable medical mistakes. And then uh, there's also a high number of those mistakes that actually lead to death. You know, if you look at, again, depending on which numbers you believe, it's either a year or two of preventable medical mistakes, leading to death that equal the entirety of deaths on the U.S. side in World War II. So I mean, it's pretty, pretty darn awful, um, and it you know it goes beyond that.
0: In the book, you say healthcare costs are flat. How is that possible when premiums and deductibles are increasing at the rate they are?
1: Yeah, so prices aren't flat, uh, but costs are. And so I reference data from what I call the real market. This is the basic cash pay and direct contracting market. And so there's five to ten years of data that show other, you know that probably the one exception is some specialty drugs. Um, but other than that, you know you just take a step back and think about it. You know, what's actually changed, you know, underlying in terms of the underlying costs? Are doctors and nurses getting paid? double what they were getting paid 10 years ago, you know, and essentially costs have doubled during that time? No, you know, they've had a little uptick. So that's not driving it. Sutures and implants, have they gone up uh, in terms of underlying costs? No. And so you look at now because of the high deductibles, particularly, and uh, the high premiums, there is a very large cash-based economy in healthcare that most people don't pay attention to. And in that market, I share a bunch of data in the book, the, per- the costs are actually flat. And so in that cash market now in the rigged market, where there's financial incentives to continue to drive healthcare costs up, I outline things like PPO networks and pharmacy benefit managers, um, but just take PPO networks. Like that would be something that you would logically think a carrier has you know maybe millions of lives, certainly hundreds of thousands of lives. You would think that they would be able to drive a better deal than you know an individual uh, or an individual company, but that's actually not the case because they have financial incentives for costs to go up. And so again, employers essentially cover about half of America, and two thirds of that are in self-insured plans. So you might have a carrier who processes the claim, but the actual employers paying for it, they pay to rent these networks. And what they're paying for is the privilege of wildly overpaying. Typically, they will pay two to 10 times the Medicare rate, even though the Medicare rate is something that provider organizations are responsible for reporting to the government under risk of fraud if they're not reporting properly of what their costs are. And uh, so, typically, what you see happening in the sort of what happens post PPOs, which is what a lot of employers are doing, they'll typically pay a multiple on Medicare. Maybe, you know, it seems like the sweet spot is 150% of Medicare because, you know, you say, who can argue with 50% more than something that is ostensibly covering your costs and giving you a little bit of margin, you know? And so, because of that, less than 2% of the time, does any provider ever push back on 150% of Medicare? So that sort of seems to be a sweet spot.
0: What are insurance companies hiding from us?
1: Um, I don't know if they're hiding it. I just don't think they're, I mean, I guess the one thing they're hiding is the contracts with the hospitals and, you know, that's where most of the spend is. And the other piece that is not in full view that the the carriers typically aren't disclosing is all the money flows to the benefits industry? So, you know, we find that when good benefits consultants go in with, you know, the proper method of compensation where it's transparent and interest are aligned, we find up to 17 undisclosed revenue streams that the employer who's footing the bill, uh, at least m- most of the bill, isn't aware of at all. And so those types of payments aren't out there, but largely, you know, they don't really have to hide it that hard because most employers have kind of handed a unlimited corporate credit card over to these companies that process their claims. I I don't use the term insurance company or payer because they're not really the payer, you know, there, it would be like calling, your tax preparer, the payer, you know, they might tell you what to pay, but they're not actually paying it. And in very, pretty small percentage of the time, is their money actually at risk? They are, it's the employer's money that's actually at risk. Even in the so-called fully insured, um, the reality is if an employer has a bad year, I can assure you that the carrier is going to Get claw that back over the next year or two in the form of increased premiums. So you're carrying the risk. It's just whether it's upfront or not. And in most cases, these organizations, you know, 100 million Americans, roughly, out of the 150, 170 million Americans who are getting benefits through their job are in self-insured. And so the only real insurance company besides the employer are these so-called stop-loss carriers who are kind of a backstop. So you have Twin hemophiliacs, or some you know really complex cancer case, or something like that. These massive million-dollar-plus claims, you know, a two-hundred-person company couldn't absorb that, and so they have the the stop-loss or reinsurance, and uh, they're the only real insurance companies in these scenarios.
0: What are some of the tricks used to redistribute money from employers to the healthcare industry?
1: There's a lot. Um, I'll give you one related to the kind of related to the PPO network, since that's something that people are generally familiar with. And there's this notion of out of network claims. So you have this PPO network, you know, maybe you, you know, you go over Christmas, you know, you go skiing in Vail and you, you know, you break your leg and, you know, you're from, you know, Iowa and your carrier uh, doesn't have, you know, the Vail hospital, you know, in the network. And so, what the carriers will do is they will automatically pay a really outrageous out-of-network price. This is the so-called charge master price the hospital has that puts out this just absurd rate, and you know, they'll claim it has no relevance and nobody's paying that, blah, blah, blah. It's not true. It's actually the basis um, and kind of starting point for negotiation. And so the carrier this process in the claim will immediately pay, say, the bill – Should have been ten thousand. In terms of that, would be what it would be if it was a cash or even like a PPO discount. But they charge a hundred thousand, so they'll pay it right away. Then they'll go back and what they call it repricing, and they'll say, you know, provider, that's ridiculous. It should not have been hundred thousand. It should have been ten thousand or something like you know, just use those numbers. And then what they'll do is. Acting like they're the hero, even though they never should have paid that outrageous price to begin with, they will charge the employer thirty to forty percent of that savings in this repricing because you know they're seemingly a hero because they negotiated the price down. So they'll get that you know thirty percent of that net you know difference between the hundred thousand and the ten thousand. So you know basically a third of that so called thirty thousand. So that's one way you know where they will make the money back and, you know, multiply that over hundreds or thousands or even millions of claims for a large organization. Those dollars can really add up.
0: Why are millennials such an important piece of this puzzle?
1: Well, because they're already the largest generation in history. They're the largest chunk of the workforce today. And uh, by the middle of the next decade, Millennials and post-millennials will be 75% of the workforce. And, uh, you know, essentially the way the healthcare system is designed today is designed as a perfect polar opposite to what millennials generally want and value and ultimately what we all want and value. And you see it um, in areas ranging from smartphones to social media. And then one related to health, which I think is very instructive, is so called big food and big soda have had some of their worst earnings in the last couple years. Um, and it's attributed to millennials because millennials are waking up to uh, the fact that, you know, there's the highest rate of obesity for people in their 20s and 30s and there's ever been. The food like substances they've been consuming aren't doing them any favors. And so they're changing their habits. And so the millennials, the oldest millennials are now leaving. What some call the invincible stage of life, you know, where you think you'll live forever and you don't really pay attention to the healthcare system. It's you know, typically people in their mid 30s start to have their own ailments and or they have kids, and so they start to pay attention to the healthcare system. And so that is we're just at the very front edge of that. And what you see smart employers doing, the ones who are spending 20, 30, 50 percent less per capita on health benefits with superior benefits packages. They will default new employees into these, these new benefits. You know They'll offer a new program typically rather than just taking away the old one. They'll offer a new one, or, or they're just early adopters of that. And word of mouth spreads, and really over a three year period, they can get 80, 90% of the workforce with millennials leading the way. And so ultimately, most of us want the same things that millennials want, whether it's smartphones, better food, you know, social media, you name it. They just happen to be the early adopters. And so it's a great opportunity for uh, wise employers who need to, uh, you know, have a robust workforce that's happy uh, to implement these new programs.
0: What are some of what you call the budget crushing flawed perceptions out there?
1: There is a multitude of them. I would say one that comes to mind is in the, which I I touched on briefly, is around musculoskeletal pain uh, and musculoskeletal issues. There's a benefits expert named Brian Klepper, and he estimates that 2% of the entire U.S. economy is squandered in non-value-add non-evidence-based musculoskeletal procedures and so that certainly is you know the case at an individual level who's you know you're paying for these deductibles and the employer's paying for it it's typically 20 20 plus percent of an employer spend so that's one there's the pricing failure that we've been talking about is probably the single biggest one Where the notion of pricing failure is, there's no correlation between what you pay and the value you get, and so when you see the successors to the PPOs, you know they're getting rid of those budget crushers. Where they're saying, "Gosh, when you remove a lot of the the sort of pain and agony for the provider to collect the money, and they don't have to chase after." the patient for money what you see the wise employers doing is essentially a smart decision they will waive all the co-pays and deductibles to go to a high quality high value center and the price will typically be 40 45 less than the so-called ppo discount so that's a big one and and then uh, another one is in the pharmaceutical area where there's just a lot of games going on there, where people are being steered towards medications, where you know, literally, you could get uh, two off-the-shelf, over-the-counter um, medications for you know nine bucks, and they'll be charging fifteen hundred bucks because they combine it into one pill, and that's their innovation and you know pharmacy spend is is typically again about another 20% and so there's just a lot of low hanging fruit that can be fixed there if you're paying attention
0: how prevalent is fraud and abuse in the healthcare industry and how much does that affect the employers and ultimately the patient
1: unfortunately it is what The Economist in an article entitled The $272 billion Swindle about four years ago wrote, it is it is the number one target for cyber crime and fraud. And once you, and then they, uh, that was $272 billion at that point. Currently it's, it's over uh, 300 billion according to the FBI and Accenture estimates. So you're talking 10% of uh, what we spend in healthcare is essentially fraudulent. And it's a lot more than just some bad actor, you know, docs in Boca Raton, Florida, or something like that. This is some of the most sophisticated cyber criminals in the world who realize there's easy pickings in healthcare. And so, the, let me give you a good example of what's going on. Uh, and again, talk to any cyber crime expert, they will confirm this. On the dark web are 150 million American health records available for sale thanks to hacks of folks like Anthem and Primera and other Blue Cross organizations and other carriers. And unlike credit card information, the shelf life is almost you know, permanent um, because you know the credit card, you can put out new credit cards and it can stop. Whereas when you get that uh, you know, essentially the information that's on a health card, you know, the patient's name probably their social security, their insurance card number. And then you combine that with a provider ID, which is available. You know, you can go download the national provider index, which is basically all the provider health professionals are on that if they accept uh, Medicare, which most do. Um, And then you combine that with a tax ID, um, which you can get from irs.gov in 20 minutes, then what that allows is them to start running claims. Um, they set up the ID and, you know, it's normal for a doc to practice under multiple tax IDs. You know, maybe they have their own practice. They've got a surgery center and maybe a couple hospitals that got privileges. So that wouldn't set off a red flag. And then if you're a halfway competent cyber criminal, you know, the carriers don't look at claims Uh, Under certain thresholds, you know, often it's like $100,000. And so you just start running claims. And we've seen instances of Fortune 250 companies, literally hundreds of thousands of claims that were uh, fraudulent over the statutory period, which is six years uh, under the regulation that self insured employers operate under. And these are things where. There's multiple claims in consecutive days um, for once-in-a-lifetime medical events. Probably the most humorous one that I heard about was it was a 42-year-old steel worker who, thanks to identity theft stolen in this, you know, what we were just talking about, had six circumcisions in six days from six different doctors. I'm not a doctor, but I'm pretty sure that's not possible, Um, and nobody, you know, each of the individual claims passed the claim check, so nobody was paying attention. And if you look at the the fraud prevention technology that's used by most of the claims processors, this is like musket era technology in the eras of unmanned drones. I mean, it's pretty laughable technology and unlike credit cards where fraud rates are well under half of one percent even though they'd been fifteen percent at one time because it's their money at risk in this case generally you know it's not their money at risk and so that would just be more cost to them to really have a you know bring an a game and unfortunately it's not happening and so that that costs all of us is if fraud wouldn't be bad enough you know it's actually A lot of those dollars are leaving the U.S. economy. So they're, you know, even, you know, criminals that are in the U.S., you know, presumably they spend some of their money in the U.S. These these dollars are actually leaving the U.S. economy.
0: Can you dig into your organization, Health Rosetta, a bit? Um, You guys say healthcare is already fixed. Join Health Rosetta to replicate the fixes. Can you talk a bit about what your organization does and how they can be a resource? Yeah,
1: I mean, that statement is both a true and aspirational statement. The true part of it is every structural problem that we've seen in healthcare, there's a solution that's already been invented, proven, and modestly replicated. You know, it's still the vast exception to the rule, unfortunately. And so our focus is on the replication. And so, at one level, you can look at it like I think it was a nonprofit. Wikipedia like open source of here's the way to purchase healthcare smart. You know, we want to remove any barriers to that. Um, you know, that's one reason for the book as well. And then, but more broadly, you know, healthcare is not an easy thing to change. You know, it's, it's a three and a half trillion dollar industry. Uh, lots of, of folks profiting from that. And the analogy of what we're, what we've, built in our building that I think is most useful is uh, lead. You know, if you've ever heard of lead certified buildings, I think the built environment is an awful like, lot like healthcare where, you know, what LEED did, um, you know, today it, it mainstreamed a once-fringe idea. You know, 20 years ago, the idea of a green-built building that, you know, uh, was very efficient, all that was a very much of a fringe concept and then over the last decade or two they essentially mainstreamed that by accrediting professionals like architects and certifying buildings and like healthcare very entrenched very local there wasn't this day where all the you know old inefficient buildings got raised and then the the new ones magically appeared the next day it was more of the old waned over a period of time, the new rose, you know, over multiple years. And and there were particular locales, by the way, where there was a density of activity. Places like Portland, Boulder, Austin, where early adopters proved out the return on investment. And so the same thing is happening in, in healthcare, where You know, you didn't get green-built buildings by putting recycled bins in coal-powered buildings. You know, you had to actually rethink it from the ground up. And so that's essentially the blueprint that is Health Rosetta is sort of modeled after the blueprint of LEED, where you say, here's actually the way uh, you need to build these plans, whether it's a, you know, Medicare plan, Medicaid plan, employer plan, and, you know, taking into account the fact that we have this giant hairball of a healthcare system that showed up, you know, randomly over the last hundred years, based on you know particular medical technology. Boom, you have radi- radiology departments and cardiology departments, and and you had World War II, so you had employer-based health insurance. I mean, nobody would design the system the way it is right now uh, from scratch, and so we're saying, hey, rather than kind of putting lipstick on the pig. And try to make this thing a little bit better. You really have to start with first principles and build up, and that's what you see. You know, going back to my example of the employers, where they don't rip away the old underperforming uh, health plan. That's too disruptive, and there's too much pushback for most organizations to do that. They'll just open a new door, and you know, set these up and get them right. And you see the same thing uh, happening. In, uh, you know, Medicare, for example, you know, my folks have been in a Medicare Advantage program that was basically uh, the care is delivered by an organization called Iora Health. And uh, Rushika Fernanda Poulet is the founder of that very uh, strong leader. And, you know, the way he puts it is you don't put wings on a car and call it an airplane, you know, and it wasn't. You know, the the shipbuilders that built the planes that across the Atlantic, you had to sort of build it from the ground up, right? And you see organizations like Iora and Chanmed and Caramore who are growing fabulously well, producing amazing outcomes, not just by tweaking the system, but building it up from the ground up. And so that's really our focus. And, you know, the equivalent of the architect – you know, that designs the building, you know, the architect, you know, in air quotes of a health plan for things like a employer or union plan is the benefits consultant. And it's probably the single most underestimated role in the entire healthcare system, you know, for better, for worse, mainly for worse, most employers have deferred their decisions to these benefits brokers who are pitching themselves as buyers agents effectively, but paid like sellers agents. So that's why you have all these conflicts of interest. Just as the stockbrokers went the way of the dodo bird, you know, that were around 20, 30 years ago, today's benefits broker is like the stockbroker 20, 30 years ago. The smart ones, smart stockbrokers reinvented themselves as financial and wealth advisors. The smart benefits brokers reinventing themselves as a a benefit advisor and getting paid in the right way. So these are the sort of things that we're certifying. That's kind of the tip of the spear.
0: So what is Health 3.0 and what does that mean for providers, government, and patients?
1: Great question. You know, I I uh, listened to, you know, one of your your other podcasts where he had uh, Dr. Zubin Demania. Aka ZDogMD. Dog MD, and that's a. I don't know if I can cross promote podcasts here, but that's that's an episode worth listening to. And Zubin is a, a big big advocate of Health 3.0, and so it, it echoes some of the themes we've been talking about here, where combine some of the best attributes of Health 1.0 that that great relationship um, and deep understanding and accountability between the patient and the 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 doctor, and so you certainly want to keep that element. And then uh, there's elements of what it, you know he talks about as health 2.0 uh, that are technology. And rather than being enslaved by technology, which is kind of happened in healthcare 2.0, uh, you're empowered uh, by that. And you know that's when kind of the magic happens, where the organizations like an Iora they start with a real focus in on the care team and getting that right. And it's just common sense, right? If you care for the care team, that's going to naturally lead to a better patient experience. You know, that's kind of when that magic happens, that partnership between the patient and their uh, care team. And that course will lead to better outcomes. And in the right system, that will lead to lower costs as well. And so, the Health 3.0 framework that I outline in the book looks at the different roles of different organizations and technology and says what's the appropriate role you know first of all how do you build up this kind of new benefit stack you know at the the bottom is the self care layer which you know you want to spend most of your life in that if it's a pyramid um and then you move up to to primary care and then things like diagnostic tests or pharmacy in the primary care setting. And then again, you move up um, that pyramid to things that are less frequent, but more dramatic. And each, you know, if you look at a pyramid from above, you know, it actually has four facets. So we look at, you know, what's the right way to pay for each of those things, whether it's the primary care or, you know, a surgery or pharmacy. Um, and then what's the sort of enabling infrastructure for that and the best way to deliver that? Um, and then finally, you know, what's the appropriate role for the government in that uh, dynamic? We tend to think of government playing. People typically think of two things with the government. They think of their regulator, for sure, and they're paying, you know, taxpayer dollars for a the, the care. So they're a, a form of payer. They tend to forget third role, which is incredibly important, which is public health. And much of outcomes are driven by things other than the, the traditional healthcare system. And then the fourth role, which almost always gets forgotten, is the government is a very large employer. And as long as we have an employer-based healthcare system, which we do in the U.S., they can be market accelerator. And so you see this in things like advanced battery technology and the internet, you don't tend to see it in healthcare yet. And that's one of the points that I make in the book is the government should get a whole lot smarter about pushing things that in many cases they're advocating for as a regulator, but then their employees are getting into the same old healthcare system that's not performing that well. Those are some of the the facets of Health 3.0 that I think about.
0: In your opinion, what does the ideal opioid mitigation plan look like?
1: Um, boy, that's a good question. I think um, one of the biggest facets of that is you have to shine a light on the um, uh, the fact that the the money flows. There's not light shined on these right now, unfortunately. And so what you see is... People are used to, you know, you can Google your doctor and find out, oh, how much are they paid by pharmaceutical companies or medical device companies? But the money flow on the business side is every bit as important as that. And so there needs to be, you know, the same uh, sunshine on the money flows on the business side as there is on the clinical side. So that's one big thing, you know, as I referenced earlier, earlier, um, the primary care piece of it is incredibly critical, where those who are, you know, just as, you know, when you had the people affected by asbestos, you know, their medical bills were picked up basically in the settlement. And so we're saying that that should be a part of the settlement is that essentially the people that have been impacted should get value-based primary care for really the rest of their life. And that should be covered by the folks responsible for this. And, you know, that's to address the multitude of issues that they're going to have directly and indirectly related to that, including making sure that when, if they need it, they have things like medication, medicated-assisted treatment. Um, and so that's, that's a really important thing. There's other things such as uh, reforming workers' comp that are also important because a lot of times workers' comp is siloed from traditional health benefits. And so, you know, a, a doc may have no idea that, you know, the patients come in is actually on some medications, you know, in the workers' comp area. So, it's things like that, you know, I've I outlined several other things in the book that, you know, I've been asked by some of the the leading lawyers, you know, on these cases to Say, you know, how do you actually go upstream to fix this and certainly hold people accountable, but keep the issue from happening to begin with? And that's where the money flows matter so much, because unfortunately, as bad as opioids are, you see other things like benzos are essentially, and that's the category of drugs that things like Xanax and Valium would fall into that. Benzos are roughly where opioids were 10 years ago in terms of addiction and death from overdose. Um, So we need to recognize that the opioid crisis isn't an anomaly. You know, it's actually really a reflection of our system in many ways.
0: Can you talk a little bit more about why you feel value-based primary care um, is such an important part of the solution? And also maybe even define it a little bit for anybody listening that might not understand it fully.
1: Yeah, I mean, value-based primary care is a contrast to uh, volume-centric primary care, which is essentially what we have now. You know, we've managed to really devastate primary care and not pay for the time that's necessary in these things. And so uh, typically what that means is you're paid a fixed recurring amount as a say primary care physician, and your incentives are to keep people healthy, not just to get them in and out. Right now, a lot of them have these bogus so-called productivity targets, you know, where they have to get people in and out in seven minutes to make a decent living, which is pretty absurd. You know, what can you do in seven minutes, but basically become, you know, kind of milk in the back of the store that's just low margin to refer to high margin stuff. And so it's so important because there is no functioning healthcare, well-functioning healthcare system in the world that I've ever heard of that isn't built on the foundation of proper primary care. You know, you see places, you know, pockets here, you know, some of which I've mentioned uh, in our chat, um, but places like Denmark where, you know, over 90% of the issues that people come into the healthcare system for can be fully addressed in a primary care setting. and despite the way the healthcare system is organized, you know, each of us is actually a single person. We're not a collection of, you know, hundred different random siloed body parts. And a lot of times the healthcare system operates that way. In fact, I mentioned Iora Health. I mean, Rushika shares stories all the time. And, you know, one of them was, you know, a patient they took over that she was on 25 different Prescriptions. She had eleven different specialists. There were multiple redundant medications. I mean, she actually took all those medications. You know, would have killed her. It would have killed a horse. But that's what our uncoordinated system has given us. Is um, and that's where you really need to have somebody that is kind of that seasoned sea captain for helping to navigate the the choppy medical waters when they happen, uh, and also you know keep you out of harm's way, do some of the preventive stuff. You know, you see some of these great value-based primary care organizations tackling lifestyle uh, diseases upstream by helping people out with things like health coaches. Some people, the issue may be social isolation. So they're showing them how to, you know, get involved in events or use the public health care system. Other people, it's they don't know how to grocery shop, you know, and so they, you know, take them to the grocery store. So those type of things can make just a massive difference in the well-being of our country.
0: Will you please talk a bit about the importance of transparency in networks and in pharmacy benefits for our listeners?
1: Yeah, transparency is incredibly important. Um, You know, you can't be a wise purchaser if you don't know actually what things are going to cost. And in the pharmacy area, it's particularly uh, egregious that You know, some of the largest companies in America, you know, Fortune 50 companies are ones you haven't even heard of that are the so-called pharmacy benefit managers. But they, again, don't have the right incentives and there's complete lack of transparency on the money flows on things like rebates and and they have all these different schemes like clawbacks and it's pretty crazy how they've become some of the largest companies in the world by essentially capitalizing on the employers, not paying attention to what's going on.
0: Well, Dave, I've taken up a lot of your time today. My final question for you is, what are you working on now?
1: Gosh, the probably number one thing I'm working on right now is essentially member communication and change management you know, we're talking about a significant change. And even if these new health plans are far better, it's still change. And so, you know, we're finding that the organizations that really do a great job, that are the ones I was referring to earlier, where they're spending 20 to 40% less per capita, they've really gotten the communication right, so that people understand their plan, how to use the the healthcare system properly. And so I'm going back to some of the same organizations I highlighted in some of the case studies in the book, and kind of the next level of detail and saying, how did you actually communicate with your employees? How did you do it upfront? How do you do it ongoing? Pretty standard stuff. But it's just, again, if you're going to go through this journey, we want to make it as seamless as possible. And so that's probably the biggest focus of mine right now is to help um, you know remove those you know roadblocks you might run into because you know change is change and that can be a barrier
0: that sounds great Dave I'd, I'd love to have you back on the show again in the future I'd love to come back so just let me know when I want to thank you again for being on the show today uh, I really appreciate it and it was an absolute pleasure to talk to you
1: likewise really appreciate the opportunity and, and thanks again